Over the past year, we've gone far and wide to bring you stories that illustrate the power and scope of disinformation, its vast power to do harm, but also some forward-looking ideas on how perhaps it can be thwarted. We thought we'd recap some of our reporting in this retrospective show from season one. This series is a joint venture between Evergreen Podcasting and Emergent Risk International, a risk advisory firm. One reason disinformation flourishes in America, it's growing by leaps and bounds on our TVs, on our phones, all over social media, is because legitimate sources of information are drying up. Here's one example. Know what this sound is? It's a newspaper press revving up to print the day's news. Unfortunately, it's a sound heard less and less in America. Newspapers have always been the lifeblood of our cities, our towns, our communities, a common thread, if you will, linking everyone and providing information on everything local, high school football scores, potholes, and what the mayor, town council, and school board are up to. But newspapers are vanishing at a rapid pace, some 2,500 gone over the last two decades, meaning that coverage of those local issues is gone as well. And when a paper goes under, it creates what is called a news desert. This desert is a fertile ground for disinformation. One person who has been tracking the demise of local newspapers and the rise of so-called news deserts is Penny Abernathy, a visiting professor at Northwestern University Medill School of Journalism. Her CV also includes time as an executive with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She was also the night chair in journalism and digital media economics at the University of North Carolina. We have lost a tremendous amount of local news over the last uh, two decades. Uh, We've lost it in the number of newspapers closed. We've lost a fourth of all newspapers and are on track to lose a third uh, over the next three years. Uh, And we've also lost almost 60% of journalists uh, that that worked in 2006 on newspapers. Uh, That has a tremendous impact on the type of local news we get. There's no one in many markets showing up to cover the school board. Uh, especially in small and mid-sized markets, and in the larger markets where we had the daily uh, papers uh, that would cover uh, important regional issues, we are now um, missing those important investigative pieces, analytical pieces, and trend pieces uh, that told us how we were related to people we might not know we were related to. In other words, we shared their same issues and we shared the same opportunities that they also did. She explains the connection between the disappearance of newspapers and the rise of disinformation. If there is no local credible news being done about issues that concern us, uh, we look for other sources. And unfortunately, because of uh, what is left, when, when, when you lose a newspaper, there's really... In most cases, no alternative uh, other than uh, maybe television or social media. So if you think about television, we've had the rise of cable television and a ton of opinion uh, journalism versus uh, fact-based journalism. 
And uh, if you look at social media, we have algorithms who basically determine what we tend to see in our newsfeed. Uh, so we now have a situation where you can have something inflammatory or provocative said on a cable news show uh, or in some other format, and it, 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 it then makes it into the social media environment. And so as a result, we end up, I would say, by most estimates, 90% of what traffics on the Internet today is about national politics. So it contributes to polarization. It contributes to the uh, notion that we're dividing the camps about what we want to hear. And that leads uh, to a fertile ground of uh, people who want to uh, use the uh, uh, the vacuum to basically uh, uh, put out misinformation and disinformation. This dynamic has real-world consequences. A current one, the recent derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, of a Norfolk Southern train loaded with deadly chemicals. One outside on the porch and looked and you see flames shooting about 20 feet in the air. That's East Palestine resident Keith Everson, the disaster immediately sparking all sorts of information on social media, some of it from credible sources and people in positions of authority, some of it not. Penny Abernathy mentioned news deserts. East Palestine, where the derailment occurred, is in Columbiana County, population 102,000. There happen to be three newspapers, but they're all small, owned by one company with very small staffs and no one focusing on environmental issues. That's according to the University of North Carolina's journalism school, which tracks newspapers around the country. There are two bigger papers in the broader region, in Akron and over the state line in Pittsburgh. But like newspapers across the country, they too have had major layoffs in recent years. There are simply not enough local reporters with local knowledge, with local contacts. The sum of all of this is a news desert, a vacuum. And, notes Meredith Wilson of Emergent Risk International, a basic law of physics dictates that vacuums get filled. What has essentially happened is, uh, you know, several media companies um, have sort of taken over this space with very politically slanted journalism that is neither local nor uh, nor neutral. And so where we previously had, um, you know, our sort of trusted local news sources, right? Well, it's local news, it's boring, it can't be, you know, it can't be disinformation. What we have instead is, um, you know, several media companies um, that have taken this space and, um, and and put in its place this very slanted journalism and, and frankly, just space-filling journalism. Space-filling and slanted, not to paint with a broad brush here, but that's a pretty reasonable description of what Americans are getting these days. In many communities, the local newspaper is gone, or at best, hollowed out, a shell of what it once was. So where do people go for information? Typically, the destination is online, and here the algorithms take over, delivering the kind of information and slant, to use Wilson's term, that tells people what they want to hear, that reinforces their pre-existing beliefs. Some of those beliefs are rooted in conspiracy theories, 
Here's one. Minutes ago, we confirmed the five people killed when a plane bound for Columbus crashed in Arkansas were all employees of CTEH. That's a group composed of expert consultants in toxicology focused on the environment. Now, a plane crash in late February taking the lives of five environmental experts. It wasn't long before breathless headlines on a few conspiracy-minded websites claimed that the plane was sabotaged as part of an effort to somehow cover up the East Palestine investigation. But the Arkansas company, CTEH, says it already had employees on site in East Palestine, and the five people on board the plane were going to an unrelated incident at a metal factory some 70 miles away. Conspiracy theories, false narratives, baseless accusations, these sorts of things find fertile ground in the desert, the news desert, where again, a dearth of local reporters creates a vacuum for others to fill. And much of it is filled by a handful of clever entrepreneurs who have built networks of websites around the country in an attempt to fill the gap created by the newspaper industry's collapse. You'll note that I said clever. I did not say they were journalists or that they were ethical or above board, just clever. This is where something called pink slime journalism comes in. I'll explain that after this short break. This series on disinformation is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm. Emergent Risk International. We build intelligent solutions that find opportunities in a world of risk. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Welcome back. I mentioned at the top of this episode that America has lost about 2,500 newspapers over the last two decades. Many more will likely be lost in the next few years. That means citizens in thousands of communities have no real journalists to keep an eye on things, hold public officials accountable, and all the rest. In many cases, these information vacuums, news deserts, if you will, are being filled not by journalists, not even by people who live and work in that particular community. Listen to this story by a young journalist named Ryan Zickgraf. Way back in uh, 2012, I was working for um, a journalism outlet called Journatic. I was an editor for that organization. And it was very strange because it was all remote. Um, and we were doing a lot of, uh, local news stories, a lot of real estate transactions at first, um, where it turns out I was getting the stories written by, um, writers in the Philippines and other countries. And it was my job just to edit it and kind of, uh, 
you know, make them look good. And then I would give those writers sort of fake American sounding bylines and then we'd publish them. And as, as my, as my tenure there went on, um, I started working for newspapers. Um, I was living in Chicago at the time and all of a sudden I was writing for Newsday in New York state, the Houston Chronicle in Texas. Meanwhile, I'd never been to Texas in my life. Journalists in air quotes, thousands of miles away, phony names, Ryan became a whistleblower, and websites that sprung up and the content they generated, he invented a phrase for all this, pink slime journalism. Back then, there was a sort of a a food scandal. CBS News had done a report on this, like, pink filler that you find um, inside of meat, of, of, like, ground beef, and it was this sort of uh, byproduct, and a lot of people didn't understand you know, what was in the meat. And so my idea calling it that was that um, it was a kind of journalism that looked like the real thing um, because often these news sites imitate, you know, the names, the sort of tropes you would see on a lo- in a local newspaper. But instead it would be, you know, this quickly assembled thing, often with bad or plagiarized information written by maybe somewhere that by somebody that doesn't even live in the local community. And so it was just a, a, a way I came up with the time to describe this kind of journalism that was sort of new. Zikgraf calls it slime because that's exactly what it is. You know, there are now thousands and thousands. And at one point um, in the last couple of years, uh, one of the CEOs of one of these companies say that they are now the number one producer of local news in the United States. One thing they do is they, again, they try to resemble things that people trust. People trust inherently um, local newspapers, local news sites more than they do a lot of the national media, a lot of broadcast media. And so they they disguise their information to look like, you know, most newspapers that you would pick up off the street in your hometown um, isn't necessarily have a partisan slant. Um, you, you know, they might have like an, an opinion column, but otherwise they try to cover both sides of, of the story. But the thing that pink slime sites do is that they take one side and don't disclose it. And so you get a lot of bad information um, pr- produced by these sites, a lot of partisan information. And people just don't know um, where it's where it's from because you know, the barrier of entry to uh, web publishing is is so low these days. One person who has taken advantage of the collapsing newspaper industry is a 50-year-old man in Illinois by the name of Brian Timpony. He was, in fact, Ryan Zickraff's employer. Zickraff tells what happened after he went public with what he said Timpony was doing. There was a man, Brian Timpony, who led the organization, and... You know, back then, he testified that he still wanted, you know, sort of nonpartisan news. Well, that changed. You know, after my story came out uh, on This American Life back in the summer of 2012, um, Jernatic kind of disappeared. They rebranded um, and they sort of changed their operations and they became more um, openly partisan and started taking dark money because here's the thing. As you probably know, there's not much money in uh, journalism these days, uh, but there is a lot of money in politics. Now, Brian Timponi knows the news business. He's a former TV reporter turned entrepreneur. He's now an internet 
kingpin of sorts, overseeing twice as many websites as Gannett, America's biggest newspaper chain. In fairness, I tried several times to reach him, but no luck. But I did find an interview from 2015 where he says, yes, newspapers are going out of business because media is evolutionary. Years. We've had trans- transformations like this one already. Um, every time there's a new medium that becomes predominant, you see this, this change. So like if you went back to, the, to 1910, uh, newspapers were the only medium that existed. And then all of a sudden radio emerges in the 20s. Um, and, ra- and, and radio becomes the predominant medium. Then, then broadcast television in the, in the 50s and 60s, and then cable television in the, in the 90s. Every time there was a transformation, um, there was a lot of disruption, and, and, uh, and media tr- was transformed in the same way it's been transformed today. Okay, that's a fair point. So where does the disinformation come in? Well, a minute ago, you heard the phrase, Dark money. Dark money refers to money that comes from organizations or individuals that do not have to identify themselves publicly. In other words, they remain in the dark. It's this anonymity, this lack of transparency, that makes it easier for false information to be put into play. Penny Abernathy, the longtime news executive and chronicler of the newspaper industry's demise, ties it all together. We've had large um, uh, politically affiliated uh, groups decide to come in and set up these fake news sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been very skillful in choosing names that appear to be legitimate. So, for instance, instead of going by the Buffalo News in New York, you might set up something that says Buffalo Tribune. Now, the goal of these websites, which proliferate in many of the areas that are economically struggling, Uh, Many of the areas that have lost a newspaper or have ghost newspapers, the goal of these sites is basically to put something so provocative that if someone picks it up off the website and it then circulates on social media at an appropriate time. These uh, they're called pink slime sites. They tend to be active right around elections. And that, of course, uh, feeds into the disinformation and misinformation that is out there on the Internet. News sites that sound legitimate, backed by dark money, feeding slanted information to consumers in town after town that is barren of local journalism, local reporters, and local accountability. This is what is happening across America. As newspapers fade away. If you like this show and this series, I hope you'll go to the Apple or Spotify page or wherever you're listening to this and give us a review. Thanks to Penny Abernathy and Ryan Zickgraff. Our sound designer and editor, Noah Fouts. Audio engineer, Nathan Corsa. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. And on behalf of Meredith Wilson of Emergent Risk International, I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. 
Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.